Uh, join with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us today with life and breath and all things pertaining to godliness. Father, I pray that in the, in the breaking and the giving of your word that life would be richly implanted in the hearts of these souls listening. Father, I pray that um, you would be honored, you would be glorified in this. I know, Father, that preaching is a, it's an aroma of death to those who are perishing and an aroma of life to those who are being saved. And, Father, I feel unworthy for that task and would ask that your grace would be sufficient to, to do its work as you intend it to do for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the world looks down on mercy. I mean, the world snubs its nose on mercy. To be, to be merciful is to be taken advantage of. To be merciful is to be opening oneself up to abuse. To be, to be merciful is, is um, to be seen as weak. And, and again, we have this, this beatitude that uh, Jesus is giving us this upside-down wisdom. And he's saying that if you want joy... This joy is going to come by embracing something that is contrary to what natural man would argue. It's embracing something that they won't understand. The Christian will only understand this kind of idea that blessed are the merciful. Um, You know, the first four Beatitudes have really been looking somewhat inward at, at the transformation that was going to take place. The the first beatitude, uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, speaks about the humility that a Christian will experience when his eyes are really open to who God is. That that God isn't kind of a miniature me, that God's really God. There's a humbling that takes place. And then the next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, that when you do see God for who he is, creator, ruler, sustainer of all things, and there's a mourning over sin. There's a there's a sense of dissatisfaction with the way we've lived our lives. <clears throat> Again, a changing of my inward perspective. And then the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. Well, how could you not be meek after coming to terms with God, seeing the nature of your sin? Of course you're meek. But God says, you will inherit the earth. And so it gives us the hope in the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, of course, I can pursue righteousness and not worldliness because I already have the world. He's already guaranteed that to me. And and, and so all of these are inward changes. Well, In the second four, it kind of moves outward. And this one in particular, it's immediately apparent. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. For they shall receive mercy. Now this is a tricky beatitude, even though there's only really one word we're dealing with, mercy. But we put definitions of mercy upon the word without thinking it through. And so I want to, as I've been doing with each beatitude, I kind of feel like in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm always trying to take what people think it is and blow that out of the water and say, no, no, this is what it is. So a lot of times we think of mercy as an emotion, sympathy, empathy. We think of just feeling sorrow. And, and we often, uh, particularly around, um, you, you see pictures of a starving child or you see a difficult situation and your, your heart kind of breaks and maybe you write a check at the end of the year and, well, I just I need to exercise mercy. I, I would say this is probably not a biblical mercy. You know, charitable organizations get 42% of their giving in the last month of the year. 
And most of the time, and I, I don't want to imply motives on people, but a lot of times it's, you know, and this is the tax advice that I used to give uh, before God regenerated me. Hey, use the money all year long for yourself and then give it at the last month on the last day and you get the deduction for the whole year. Now, when that's done with the bottom line in mind, I don't think that's biblical mercy. Another thing that we often masquerades or counterfeits as biblical mercy is this idea of uh, sporadic exercising in kindness, that, that it's periodic. I, I, may, I may be moved by guilt, I may be moved, but it only happens once, and then it goes away for a while, and then it happens again. I don't know that that's biblical mercy. I'm thinking about the instruction, of really the chiding that God does to Israel in, in Hosea 6.4. He, um, he says, your love is like the dew in the morning. It's, it's there, but then about 8.30, the sun's up, it's gone. It's kind of a sporadic mercy. I don't think that's a biblical mercy. It, it's to be intentional. It's to be regular. It's to be a part of you, not what you do as much as who you are. A, another biblical mercy that often masks, masquerades is this idea of opening yourself up to abuse. I don't think that's biblical mercy. Uh, allowing yourself to be used for ungodly purposes or to be taken advantage of, I don't think that's biblical mercy. Nor is temperament. Some people are just wired. They're just nicer. They're kinder. They're more sympathetic. And while I think that's a great thing and can be used for God's purposes, I don't know that that's biblical mercy. It's not driven by temperament, but rather driven by our devotion to Christ. So those are things that I think we may often think are biblical mercy, but, but I would question whether they are. So what is it? It begs the question. Well, let me give you a... I think a helpful definition. One would be, uh, it's an intentional act of kindness to a person in need without expectation of repayment or reciprocity. It's an intentional act of kindness without any expectation in return. It's, a, it's, an, active, active, it's an active work of compassion, uh, trying to uplift a person from the consequences of their sin or perhaps the sins of others on them. In other words, a biblical mercy is looking to relieve a problem and to restore a person to the dignity that they have as an image bearer. Uh, Mercy is different than grace. Uh, They can work synonymously, but oftentimes grace is dealing more with the guilt of sin, and hence we need forgiveness. Whereas mercy is dealing with the result of sin, which is misery, and so we bring aid and help. Now, if these definitions seem too lofty for you, too difficult to understand, let me give you a picture of this biblical mercy. So you know the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan goes like this. There's a Jewish traveler. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And of course, They didn't have police. They didn't have lights. The roads were very, very hazardous when you left the safety of a city. He fell among robbers, and they beat him up. They stripped him naked, took everything he had, left him dead in the road. So he's laying there. Jesus is telling this parable now, and he's telling this parable, by the way, to to an expert in the law who said, what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus had said, well, Two greatest commands, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind, your soul and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the expert in the law, which we try to kind of carve out a niche for ourselves to stand, he says, well, who's really my neighbor? See, if I can shrink wrap neighbor down, then I'm probably in good shape. So who's my neighbor? And this is what prompted the parable. 
So he says, this man fell among thieves, is left half dead on the road, he's going to die if someone doesn't take care of him. So two men go by, a Levite, a man who works in the temple, and a priest. And they go by and they look at it. I imagine they had compassion, but they just keep on moving. Maybe it was religious responsibilities. Maybe it was inconvenient. Maybe it was a threat to them. If I take care of him, I'm opening myself up. Maybe the robbers are right around the corner. I I don't want to subject myself to that, and I'm going to keep moving. But then a Samaritan comes. Now, a Samaritan were the people to the north of Israel, hated by Israel. They they were half-breeds. They were a mixture of Israel and Gentile, and and, and people hated their culture and their people. And, And he sees the man, and it says he has compassion. In other words, that was me. I mean... The man's helpless. He cannot save himself. And so he has compassion. He takes the man and, of course, cleans his wounds, gives him oil and wine, puts him on his animal, takes him to the inn, pays the man to take care of him until he can come back. Full intention of the Samaritan is not to drop him at the innkeeper and keep rolling, but to come back and to finish saving him and helping him. So this is the parable that Jesus is teaching. Now, the early centuries of the church, they always saw Jesus as the good Samaritan. So he wasn't just telling a story. He was the good Samaritan. And the reason why they thought that is because God was demonstrating his mercy to the world by sending Jesus, the Samaritan, to help those who cannot help themselves, which is us. That God demonstrates his mercy to us in Christ's coming. And and unilaterally, Delivering a people who were unable to deliver themselves. They were lost, they were helpless, they couldn't deliver themselves. And and Jesus is the good Samaritan demonstrating God's mercy by taking upon himself our our burden, our wound, our sickness, our sin. And and, and bringing about healing and restoration and, 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 and recovery to us. So the the parable of the Good Samaritan is really a picture of God's mercy to men through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is a picture of mercy. Now, it, it shouldn't surprise you that the only other time mercy is used in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It's the only other time. Three times, twice in Matthew 5, 7, and once and let me read to you that passage. He says, therefore, he, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. So the merciful ministry of Christ is a ministry of propitiation, of saving, of delivering, of aiding the weak and the unable. And the word propitiation is a theological term. Here's what it means. You'll understand it. It may be difficult to pronounce, but it's Jesus with sin placed upon him and the wrath of God coming down on the sin because God is just and righteous and sin is punished and, and Jesus absorbs the full wrath of God such that God is satisfied that he is a perfect substitute so that the one, the sins that he bore, would be free and reconciled to God. That's why Jesus is often seen as the mercy seat. You know, the fire comes down on the seat and we're huddled under it. 
and, and the flames go off of it. The seat bears the wrath of God, but those under it are safe and they're sound. That's us. That's propitiation. That's what this mercy, this what this faithful, merciful high priest has done for us. This is the mercy that he's given to us. Now, this was known in his ministry. Jesus would be walking down to Jericho, and here is the blind man, Bartimaeus. What does he say? Have mercy on me. Now, Bartimaeus wasn't just going for the recovery of sight. He had a bigger problem. And we know that because he asked for mercy, not immediately sight, but he asked from the son of David. In other words, he knew that this Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David, who was coming to bring mercy. So this is a picture of mercy. It's the gospel. This beautiful demonstration of mercy for us. So when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, that's the freight behind it. It's profound. This is why we are now to be merciful. Now, we cannot propitiate sin, but we can can propagate the Savior in the way we exercise mercy. In fact, uh, Alexander McLaren, 19th century preacher, said, you are to move among men as copies of God. That's what you're called to do. You're to move among men as copies of God. The mercy of God in Christ, you are to move among men. So he says, blessed are the merciful. So you are to move among men as the copies of God. Now, now let me give you some examples of what that looks like. I want to give you some tangible expressions of what mercy looks like. Number one, because I'm going to ask you, we're going to have a little test. And I'm going to ask you some questions at the end. So here's what, blessed are the merciful. Well, first is that tangible, that tangible financial, economic help to those who are struggling and in trial, right? I mean, the, the Levite and the priest walked by. They felt compassion. Everybody, granted, they have compassion, but they did nothing with it. They didn't give any aid. They didn't give any material comfort. Now, I don't mean to think, and I don't mean to imply to you, that we can handle every position or every time that someone struggles. It, we can't handle all the suffering in the world. It, but I don't want that to be an excuse for not dealing with the opportunities that we can, that God brings before us. So it's to bring material comfort. Here's what it looks like. Uh, number one, it would be impartial. It's like Lady Justice, that, that, that our extending of mercy is blind to color or cr- category or creed or anything. We, we, we extend mercy without distinction but but it's also unilateral that our extension of mercy is not just to family and friends and those who can appreciate and pay it back but it's without expectation of repayment it's given freely without strings and and this 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 benevolent mercy is to be is to be sacrificial it will cost you in terms of time or effort or money there is a cost Because I'm rooting it all back in this propitiating work of Christ, there is a cost to it. And we have to, blessed are the merciful. Those who want to be happy, this sacrifice will be a sacrifice of praise. There has to be a sacrifice to it. I have a friend who um, works, and this person, I'll probably foul up the pronoun at one point, but right now they're going to be genderless, uh, this person takes their salary and, and gives a large portion of it 
and loves to give to people in need. She loves to give me envelope. Oh, there we go. So how long did that last? What was it, four seconds? It's me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, to put money in an envelope, give this. Who's most in need? And boom, give it. And, and so every few weeks, handing out envelopes. I mean, there is a joy. There is a blessing for the citizen of the kingdom to, to meet these physical, temporal, their temporal needs, no question about it. But they display an eternal service of God. And, and so there has to be sacrifice, this impartial, this unilateral, I'm going to bring help to those whom God has sovereignly brought across my path, even if it denies me a vacation, even if it denies me the purchase that I've been waiting for and even saving for. It involves that. But secondly, this mercy, this benevolent mercy, that this biblical mercy involves forgiveness. Uh, now, now, I want you to consider this, that the mercy of God is expressed in forgiveness. You can see that in the gospel. But it's expressed in our forgiveness to one another. In other words, those of you who have been wronged or have been unjustly treated or perhaps unfairly criticized, have you brought forgiveness have you considered your own sin and extended kindness to them? That, that, that to be merciful is to be forgiving. Now, you know the story in Matthew 18. Here's another parable that Jesus taught. And it's called the unmerciful servant. And it's properly named. There's a, here's a story. There's a king. And the king has a servant. And the servant has acquired a debt that is unpayable. And so he appeals to the king for mercy. And the king says, yes, I'll grant you mercy. And the debt is removed, he's forgiven. Once forgiven, he goes out and gets a fellow servant who owes him a very small sum and demands payment. This servant asks the forgiven servant for mercy. Same words. And this servant says, no way. Throws him in prison and says, you're going to pay it back. And you'll be there until you do. Well, of course, the king gets wind of this servant and draws him back in. The king says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you asked and you couldn't forgive this servant, a much smaller debt. And then, of course, he well, gets in a lot of trouble, frankly. The point of telling the parable is that mercy looks like the extension of forgiveness. So when he says, blessed are the merciful, you, you are called to draw yourself in and say, in your marriage, is there unresolved conflict? I mean, is there just long, stewing conflict that you're not going to give your ground, she's not going to give her ground? Or in your family, or in this church? I mean, what have you justified yourself in terms of not giving forgiveness? Why wouldn't you give forgiveness? If you saw the debt that was relieved for you, why wouldn't you give forgiveness? Is it, I've already told you that the world looks down on it because it's dangerous business being merciful. And it will be dangerous, you being merciful. But that's what it looks like. It looks like forgiveness. The citizen of the kingdom walks in forgiveness. Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He's keeping the decks clear. Okay, a third example of this biblical mercy would be charitable judgments. In other words, um, Giving the benefit of the doubt. You know, overlooking sin. Not implying motives to someone. Not bringing about harsh judgments. Well, they did that because, boom, boom, boom. And now, because you've just found them guilty, now we can hold them accountable. 
Uh, not making these harsh judgments. Thomas Watson said, this, this biblical mercy looks like protecting the name of your neighbor. I'm not going to receive slanderous comments, and I'm not going to give slanderous comments. I'm going to protect their name. If they do something that looks perhaps just off to the side, and why do they do that? I'm not going to imply to them that they're up to some ulterior motive. I'm just going to step back from that. That's what mercy looks like. Wouldn't you like that if you did something and only half the story was told? Don't you feel that burning desire? Well, let me tell the rest of the story. You know, you want your side known. But mercy says, I'm not going to imply motives. And and then fourth, biblical mercy would look like um, prayer, encouragement, uh, fellowship, strengthening the saints. Not, not just the physical aid to people. God have mercy in praying for them. I think that's a great expression of mercy. You ought to sometimes just track the time you pray during a week and how much time is done for other people versus yourself or your immediate family. It, it can be telling. And, and so pray. You know, not just praying for people, but encouraging people. You know, all of us have people in our lives that have chronic issues. Chronic issues are very difficult to deal with. Uh, You know, it's very difficult to fight for faith when there's a physical ailment or there's a spiritual ailment or there's just just straight up old depression and darkness. It's very hard to fight through that by yourself. And the problem is when you go chronic in terms of chronic health or chronic depression or chronic spiritual struggle, the tendency of every human being is towards isolationism. And that's the worst thing. And so friends need to go and jump in the hole with them and to speak and to encourage and to pray for. This is what mercy is. It's not saying, you know what, I've been with this, I've been with them through this over and over again. I'm done with telling them. No, it's the long suffering. Yeah, I told you a story a few years back about John Newton. He's the great hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, so he pastored with a man named um, William Cooper, who was another hymn writer and poet. And um, back in the 18th century, and, and William Cooper suffered, they think, with just great depression. I mean, real bad depression. And, and their, their ministries and their lives crossed paths for 12 years. And John Newton, who was an active pastor, uh, would minister to him every day. And it was said that over 12 years, only few times was he separated from encouraging this William Cooper by more than seven hours. I mean, I don't know that we do that with our spouses. I mean, that's profound mercy. So the question is, does this benevolent mercy and, and exercising of forgiveness and this giving charitable judgments and suffering with people and serving people, does that challenge your view of mercy? Blessed are the merciful. Does that challenge it? I mean, do you see evidence of it in your life? Because here's the test. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, Preached right on through the Second World War in London at the time. His family was outside. He'd come in, preach every Sunday, stay all afternoon. Even during the air raids, a great, great uh, pastor in London in the mid and late 20th century. Died in the 80s. Here's what he wrote. and it's Just give me a minute, it's a few, few sentences. Blessed are the merciful. What a searching statement that is. What a test of each one of us, of our whole standing, and of our profession of the Christian faith. He says, our Lord is depicting and delineating the Christian man and the Christian character. He's obviously searching us, he's testing us, and it's good that we should realize that if we take the Beatitudes as a whole. 
It's a kind of general test to which we are being subjected. How are we reacting to these searching tests and probings? They really tell us everything about our Christian profession. And if I dislike this kind of thing, if I'm impatient with it, if I dislike this personal analysis and probing and testing, simply means that my position is entirely contrary to that of the New Testament man. But if I feel, on the other hand, that though these things do search and hurt, nevertheless they are essential and they are good for me, if I feel it is good for me to be humbled, and that is a good thing for me to be held face to face with this mirror, which not only shows me what I am, but what I am in light of God's pattern for the Christian man, then I have a right to be hopeful about my state and my condition. A man who is truly Christian, as we have seen, never objects to being humbled. It's the first beatitude. So test yourselves in this. Test yourself. Do you find yourself, have you, and can you look back over six months and say, I have exercised mercy with, with meeting financial and economic hardships for those people that God has sovereignly brought in my life or some measure or helped in any measure? Can you say, yes, I have done that? First John warns us, he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need not, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, I don't get it. Because the person who does not move in this way, why do you claim to be a Christian? Doesn't the citizen do that? Or or not just economic, what about the forgiveness issue? I mean, how many of you have unresolved conflict within your own marriages that you have just, that's just the new normal. It didn't start out that way, but it's become the new normal. And there's there's this low level of discontent and disharmony and dissatisfaction. And you're not going to budge, they're not going to budge, and you're just going to keep moving on. Or with the family or someone in the church. Well, it's no problem, I'll just sit on the other side of the building from them. I mean, I I want you to know that the degree to which you desire to exercise forgiveness, I realize it's complicated. And, And I realize that forgiveness, it's one thing to say it, it's another one thing to walk it out. But if there isn't even a desire for it, then I think that does give you kind of a read as to where you are. And, and I, think it's, I think you're duly warned to hear this. Or, or, or charitable judgments. If your judgments of people are harsh and unforgiving, and you always seem to be right, you know, everybody else is an idiot. And that's, that's the greatest test when I know that I'm the idiot. Yeah, everybody else is an idiot. I'm the only one that has it right. And, and, and so when your judgments are harsh, and they're not forgiving, and they're not, they're not long-suffering, what does that indicate? What does it indicate about you? Now, conversely, if you are moving in this mercy, if you are seeking forgiveness to the best of your ability, if you are correcting uncharitable judgments, let that be an encouragement to you. Let me just bookend this kind of test time for us with what Spurgeon, of course, the 19th century preacher, said about this. He says, Notice that our Lord's subject was not how we are to be saved, but Who are saved? He's speaking about the Beatitudes. He is not here describing the way of salvation at all. That he does in many other places. But here he gives us the signs and evidences of the work of grace in the soul. Now, I don't want you leaving here guilty. I want you leaving here exposed. Exposed to say, yes, I see these things. Well, well, by God's grace, then give him thanks. Because that should confirm and encourage you. 
If you're coming up shy, then be exposed to the Spirit of God and allow him to bring conviction to you. Because here's the promise that Jesus gives. Blessed are the merciful. I've explained what it isn't. I've explained what it is and given you examples and asked you to test yourself. And then he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I know immediately when you see that, you think of, this seems almost meritorious. It almost seems like a spiritual quid pro quo or tit for tat. You know, that if I exercise, to the degree I exercise mercy, I'm going to get mercy. So it moves us into being like a little mercy, mercy mercenaries. You, you know, we want to give more to get more. And I don't think that's the point at all. I don't think that's what he's driving at here. But there are some scriptures that seem to imply that. That if you forgive your brother, so your heavenly father will forgive you. So are we supposed to look at that as some sort of quid pro quo? I don't think so. I think, number one, it would destroy the nature of mercy. Mercy by its nature cannot be earned. That's one problem. It cannot be earned. Number two, it's a frightening proposition, really. Because if I'm only going to get mercy in the measure that I dole it out, it's not looking good for me. I, I don't always give mercy, and I don't always give it quickly, and I don't always give it fully. And so if I'm only going to get it by what I give, then I'm not real confident in this absolute merciful gift that God's going to give to me. So I don't know that I want it to be quid pro quo. In fact, I think I don't. I think what he's saying here is that those who have been touched by the mercy of God at the beginning will give it. And as they give it, they will find it to be great and desire more and get more. Let me read to you what Sinclair Ferguson, a a modern preacher of the day, has written on this. He says, he doesn't mean that the cause of our receiving mercy will be the fact that we're merciful. But being merciful is the natural result of receiving Christ. And experiencing grace. John Stott, another uh, preacher recently deceased, says, Is it not true that nothing shows our forgiveness better than our willingness to forgive? So, so I, I don't think he's saying it's a, it's a tit-for-tat thing. I think he's saying if you've been touched by mercy, you're going to want to give mercy. And as you give mercy, you're going to see your need for greater mercy, and you're going to receive mercy. And so I think that's the idea. So what's the promise here? He says this, Blessed are those who are merciful, they shall receive mercy. So what is the mercy that we receive? Well, the mercy that God gives us today, remember there's mercy for today and that day. I always want you thinking with these Beatitudes, today and that day. Today the mercy that you receive is, of course, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. This reconciled relationship with God. This sense of God's acceptance of you. You don't strive any longer. You're going to sin today. You're going to sin perhaps walking out of this church. But God's mercy will be sufficient for you. And it's sufficient today for you. So every morning, you know, in Lamentations, it says this. For the love of God, not the love of God, that's John 3, 16. Lamentations says, because of God's great love for us, we are not consumed. Thank you for that. His mercies are new every morning. So when the believer wakes up, there is a fresh load of grace mercy that God will give to you for the day and all that lies before you. Not just in facing sin and overcoming temptation, but when you fail, it says in Hebrews that you can go to the throne of grace in your time of need for mercy, and he'll give it to you. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. So God's mercy is for the church daily, fully, completely, 
so that you can persevere in this life as a faithful follower. That's our blessing today. So when I committed sins yesterday, I looked at my life this morning, I confessed my sins, reminded myself His mercy is new to me. I didn't get up in this pulpit with great heaviness of heart and burden of sin, but light, forgiven, and free, thankful to the gospel and to Christ's work for me because His mercy is new. But there's also mercy for that day. In other words, there's going to be a day when every one of us will stand before God. And that is a day of judgment. That will be a day of wrath. But for the believer, it will not be wrathful because he will be merciful to you. Now, we don't think about God's wrath anymore. We don't, we don't use the term. I mean, we have modernized God and we have minimized God. And so wrath is not an issue. We don't think about this judgment idea. We see it in Adam, that's true. We see it in the flood, that's true. We see it in the Tower of Babel, that's true. We see it all through the scriptures, that's true. We clearly see it at the cross of Christ. There was massive judgment there, that's true. But then we don't think he's going to be wrathful at the end. And I don't know where we get that, but we've come up with that. But I want to tell you, it's not going to be that way. In fact, it's interesting that we are a people who can so quickly discount the wrath of God, and yet if there's a thunderclap that we're not prepared for, we startle. We're terrified of economic meltdown. We're terrified of political upheaval. I mean, we're frightened over West Nile virus, for goodness sake. But the wrath of God, we got that square. That's okay. We got it nailed down. And, and the reality is, this is a blessing for us. There is joy that facing that wrath, we don't fear because we've been removed from wrath. So blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. That's what you'll receive today and on that day. Now, let me just ask you this. You know, the world is going to look at this, and the world is going to discount mercy. The world is going to consider mercy to be foolish. Now, the world may exercise mercy when it is expedient to their well-being and when it makes them feel better. The world will exercise mercy. But by and large, mercy is something that they won't do. It's for maybe, maybe old ladies and, and old grandfathers that exercise mercy, but not them, not in the business world at least. Okay, so you got the world. Then you got the religious person. You know, the religious person that I've been going after is the moralist. It's the moralist that is religious, that practices religion. And, and, and he practices religion because it makes him feel good. It's right. It's appropriate. It makes sense. I believe in this theology. I'm going to do these things. But there's no mercy there. They don't have a mercy. No, they, they've kept the dictates of what they've established Christianity to be. But there's no mercy. Should they have a confidence? Well, here's what Jesus said. So Jesus is uh, speaking to the, um, he's having dinner with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees come up and say, what's he doing there eating with those people? And, um, and so Jesus hears them and he says, go and learn what Hosea said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've come not for the righteous, but for the sinner." In other words, there are people that will be practicing religion. They'll be moral. They'll be theologically straight. But there will be no mercy. And they are rebuked. And so you have the world and you have the religious. And they're really different but similar. They both need to repent. They both need to find God's grace sufficient to convert them that they might exercise mercy. That mercy is the expression of God having humbled them and drawn them to himself. They both need to repent. The religious needs to repent of his religiosity and his self-righteousness and the, 
the worldly man needs to repent of his sin and licentiousness. Now, the Christian, and, and I would call that to you, that if you have rested, you know, that, that you don't have mercy in your life, but you have a catalog of obedience to a certain set of rules that you find not objectionable. That is not, you know, there's a lot of moralists that are going to go to hell. Repentance and faith lead to salvation. So what about the Christian here? Well, with the Christian here, perhaps you're feeling or you should feel conviction of sin, perhaps, or rejoicing over what God's done. But I want to I lead you a way out. So when we're convicted of sin, as I've been all week, and, and particularly for me, perhaps with harsh judgments or perhaps being the Levite or the priest, I can see myself playing those roles very easily. And so, and so what do we do? Well, we repent. And, and, and let me just give you some ideas on how to develop this mercy, how to move back to the Father, how to move back into a position where I can begin exercising mercy. Number one, I would be, number one would be to consider the nature of your sin. Now, I know this is, this is goofy language in today's world, and I know that I've been beating it with each beatitude, but I think there's something valuable here to consider the nature of your sin. When Charles Spurgeon preached this back in, I don't know, 1859, he said the Beatitudes were like a ladder. They're like a ladder, and each rung leads to greater and greater light. But they go after one another. So in other words, you cannot exercise mercy until you start on the first rung of the ladder, which is, I am poor in spirit. I've been humbled before God. That leads to mourning over my sin once I see how great God is and what my sin is against him. I mourn over the sin, which again, as I said, leads us to meekness. How can we be proud and arrogant and self-righteous when we've seen our humility in our sin? And that meekness then leads to self-righteousness. And once that happens, now I can begin being merciful because I can't believe what he's done for me. And so I can look at my pile of sin that he's forgiven, and that motivates, of course, I can be merciful. So we start with ourselves, but we don't remain there. The next thing we do is go back to the cross. Now, this is important. I want to give you a piece of theology here that may be a little difficult to follow, and so I'll go a little bit slower. But here's what's interesting. That I said to you that mercy is an expression of the character of God through the cross of Christ. And let me remind you of two stories. One was back in Exodus 34. Moses leading the children, right, to the promised land. They had just fallen by making the golden calf. They were again knee deep in sin. Moses is thinking God's going to slam them all. Moses says, God, show me your glory. I don't think Moses was looking for a flash in the pan. Hey, give me some power show here. I think that Moses was asking for God to reveal himself to Moses. And is he forgiving, and is he merciful, and is he going to destroy these people, or should I keep trying to lead him? God, I want to know where you are in this. I want you to draw a line in the sand. Show me your glory, God. Show me if you're going to lead him or if you're going to destroy him. And so you know what Moses, or what God does, he doesn't give him a flash in the pan. He says this, the Lord descended in the cloud, and stood there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. This is the Lord. This is his glory. Okay, now, go with me to John 1. And Jesus... And the apostle says, we beheld what? We, we beheld his glory, the glory of Christ. 
is expressed in the forgiveness, the mercy that was achieved at the cross. So for us to look at the cross, you see God's glory demonstrated by the mercy that he has given to us. And when you see your sin, you go to the cross, you see his glory expressed through his mercy. How can you not move with mercy? It will develop mercy within you. And John knew that when he tied into the glory. That's the mercy that Jesus came. And that's why they called out, have mercy on me, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what they wanted. They wanted the mercy of the God from Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Okay, thirdly, I would remind you, don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you've come from. I, I mean, when you struggle with exercising mercy to people, just remember who you are, what you were like before God unilaterally redeemed you. I mean, think about the language that is used of people in Scripture. We're dead, we're deaf, we're dumb, we're blind, we're lepers, we're paralytics. I mean, think of all the metaphors and the actual situations that Jesus healed. To show This is what you really like, and this is what my redemption is going to do for you. And so let's remember who we are. So when you get frustrated and angry and tired, that was me. It, it, it's no different than, you know, when, when the kids would, would lie to me, and, and I would just be aghast at my children lying to me. And Carol would very gently say, Hello, they're children. Uh, they're not saved. They're not Christian. Why are you expecting a non-Christian to act like a Christian? And it, it totally changed my paradigm. Not the fact that it didn't deal with it, but I, I changed my expectations. It gave me grace to minister to them with mercy. Not only that, but, but uh, so I would say don't forget who you are. And, and then fourth, I think we're at four, uh, I, I would also encourage you uh, to make a list of who you need to deal with. Think through who you need to deal with off this sermon. This sermon is going to just be one more sermon down the path If you don't move on it, you're going to hear it. And if you don't do it, you're just going to deceive yourselves. And I know a little bit more about mercy now. But if you don't exercise it, then it gets lost. It's in the doing that you're really knowing. So make a list. Who is it? You know, it says in Ephesians 4, it says um, uh, that we are to be forgiving. He says, in fact, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So make a list. And begin to make roads. In two more weeks, we're going to be talking about peacemakers. So I'm going to be hitting this again. Make a list of who you need to deal with, who you need to reconcile. Ask forgiveness for if Harsh judgments, unforgiveness, whatever. I would also say plead with God for the Holy Spirit. Ask God to grant you power through the Spirit that is in you that you're able to begin moving in that way. Ask Him. Ask Him for that. Plead with Him. Tell Him you can't do anything without the Spirit. He will fill you. He will give you the strength. He'll set up circumstances, situations that you can move with greater mercy and grace. And then two more, and these are kind of important. One is seek counsel from others in the church. I realize this is a thorny topic for some of you with layers of struggle and problem. And uh, it's a difficult question. Should a parent discipline or just keep giving mercy? Or or should um, a Christian boss fire a slack worker or should they keep giving them mercy? Should elders excommunicate a continuously erring brother or should they give him mercy? These are difficult questions. They, they really are. They, they need the counsel of other people. For you to make the decision on your own, I don't. maybe you're smarter than I am, I, I need a counsel of people to bounce it off of. What do you think? 
See, the idea is this is not, Jesus didn't give us any list. Okay, in these cases, you exercise mercy, and in these cases, you don't. He didn't give us that. I think what he's driving at is when you exercise discipline, when you exercise, all these things should be done in mercy. In other words, he doesn't give us qualifications. And so you need help from other people to say, am I wrong or should I give in again? Should I exercise mercy again? Or or is it time now to bring a proper amount of judgment to a situation? Uh, And then last, I would ask you to consider just the nature that mercy is greater than sacrifice. We can do the sacrifice because it's measurable. We can see that we're tithing. We can see that we're going to church. We can see that we're doing this ministry. Exercising mercy. You can do all those things without mercy, by the way. You can write a check, you can tithe, you can help the poor and never have a heart for them. You can can go to church, never have a heart for the lost. You you can do all these exercises of religiosity and never have mercy. And so I want you to be mindful of that. And to, to take time this afternoon and think through, where is the mercy that I have? Do I have mercy? Is it evidence? Is it expressed? Can I ask a believer that is close to me? Do you see the mercy that I'm trying to exhibit? So let me pray for us, and then we will move to the table of mercy. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Lord, thank you that in his glory, uh, he has redeemed us through mercy. So, Father, would you be glorified now as your spirit does its glorious work of applying to us the truth of this message, where it's at, where we're at. Father, I pray. Pray uh, that there would not be false guilt or even false conviction, but those through whom are exercising mercy would be encouraged and those who perhaps are not would come under conviction, leading them to repentance and renewal and joy, the joy that you promised. Blessed are the merciful. Father, may we be a church uh, that evidences our joy through the expression of our giving mercy. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.